Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I, and it is mainly Helen, are going to have our first go at answering some of the questions that you've been sending in about the big issues we've been discussing over the past year. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And with the summer of COVID-delayed sport now underway, the LRB has a special offer for Talking Politics listeners. Subscribe for just £1 an issue, that's six months of the LRB, for just £12. And you'll also get a collection of the LRB's best pieces about sport, introduced by me, David Runciman, and featuring Tarek Ali on cricket, Carl Miller on football, Amir Srinivasan on surfing, among many others, all for free. Just use the URL lrb.me slash freebook, one word. That's lrb.me slash freebook. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in a question. We have had lots, literally hundreds, and they are great questions. And we're going to try and get to quite a lot of them. So we're going to do a series of these episodes and we're trying to break it down very broadly into themes. We had lots of questions about British politics and the future of the union, and we're going to come to that next week. Today, we're looking at geopolitics, and that means some of the big talking politics themes, Helen themes, questions about energy, about climate, about China, and about the state of the global economy coming out of the pandemic. Our producer, Catherine Carr, is going to put the questions to us. These are our attempts to give you some answers. Let me just hang on one second. Let's find my pen if I can, because I might need. OK, so the first question we've got in geopolitics is, can you address the question of what the geopolitics of vaccines might look like? Helen, I think you should take a crack at that one. Are you going to say this on all the geopolitics yes. questions? Yes, I am. <laughs> I don't think it's a question of like what it might look like. I think it's a question of like what it already looks like. And what we've seen really from before vaccines were even on the on the scene is that it was an opportunity for certain states and the ones that it is an opportunity for are the ones obviously who've got a vaccine and, and or got some productive capacity to use it to try to achieve foreign policy objectives. If you go back to like May of last year, then uh, Xi Jinping, the, the Chinese leader, was was talking about Chinese vaccines being a global public good. And since then, China's delivered vaccines to somewhere between like probably 70 and 100 countries. And it looks like, at least in some places, that it wants concessions for giving the vaccines. So there was a big issue about Paraguay. As Paraguay is a country that recognises Taiwan as an official state. And it looked like the Chinese were basically trying to get Paraguay to give up that recognition of Taiwan in exchange for getting the vaccines. It's not entirely clear that that's what happened in the end, partly because India stepped in. But you see the logic of it and you can see it as well in relation to a potential exchange that was made with Brazil in the way in which Brazil was going to deal with Huawei, the Chinese tech company, in relation to 5G. So that's one place where you can really see the Chinese trying to use it to achieve political objectives in other areas. And it's clearly been an issue in relation to some East European countries that are in the the European Union, 
that have wanted to take Russian vaccines, the Sputnik vaccine. Indeed, the the Slovak prime minister had to resign back sometime earlier this year because of the fact that he basically secretly arranged an agreement with the Russians about the provision of Sputnik to um, Slovakia. That brought his government down, and but the new government is still going ahead with Russian vaccines and did so even before they had been approved by the European Medical Agency. I don't want to suggest either that it's just a question of like what the Chinese and the Russians are doing, because when the Biden administration moved to allowing the exports of um, the AstraZeneca vaccines that Americans weren't using to Mexico, there was some suggestion that there was a implicit, at least, deal about the Mexicans tightening up the US-Mexican border. So you can see in a world in which there's all kinds of different political issues in play, different political conflicts, that those who have got the ability to export vaccines to others have got a very, very powerful tool at their disposal. So I don't have any thoughts on this that are anything like as substantial as that, but I suppose I have a few general reflections on this question. So one thing it makes me think of, and this is, a, I suppose, an obvious point to many people, but there is this rhetoric around the pandemic that it's a global problem, it requires global solutions, and it will eventually or should break down borders. But the geopolitics of vaccines does seem to push in the opposite direction. So it's, it already has, and I'm sure it will increasingly over time, entrench existing power relations and power dynamics. It doesn't seem to be breaking them down. Those who have, have more under these conditions, and those who lack are dependent. And for all the reasons that Helen said, I don't think there's any reason to think that the geopolitics of vaccines somehow disrupts or reorients the existing order. It seems to reinforce it. And that includes borders as well. I mean, it's it, the geopolitics of vaccines could seem like something that ought to cross, transcend and break down national borders and national boundaries, but it doesn't seem to be doing that. I can't see it doing that. Uh, this is a world of nation states. This is a world of nation states engaging with each other in familiar ways around this question. I also found myself thinking, I don't know, so I don't know enough about the science of this, but for now at least, there's a sort of indiscriminate feeling that not quite one vaccine is as good as another because they clearly aren't. Uh, some of them are more effective than others. But we haven't quite had a kind of politics of competitive vaccines that in the end, will this be a political economy in which there's a sort of winner-take-all market that one vaccine will emerge as the go-to vaccine, particularly in relation to the possibility of other variants of this disease. And that's the, the final thought that I had. There's a geopolitics of disease variants as well. And as this pandemic continues to move around the world, so as we record this each day, one is struck, I'm struck by just how diverse the experience of the pandemic is in time frames. So Colombia is currently suffering a terrible third wave. Thailand is currently suffering a terrible third wave. You see each day places in the world that have just had their worst death toll the day before. At the same time, you see other places in the world that seem to be way past the worst of it. And that dynamic is just going to increase. And at some point, presumably over the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, this question of the vaccine versus the pandemic will look different, either because there is a version of the pandemic which resists certain vaccines, or there is a vaccine that is much, much more effective against the new versions of the pandemic. And we're not in that phase of it yet. So I think the politics of vaccines has quite a way to go. 
And that phase of it could be very different from this phase of it. This phase of it is still, you take the vaccine where you can find it. Might not always be like that. I don't know what you think, Helen, but I feel like this could still be not an early phase of this, but a phase which might look different in 12 months' time. That's certainly true. And I think the question of the effectiveness of the, the vaccines, particularly against multiple variants, will come into play because one of the things that's that's true about the Chinese strategy in relation to it, which was clearly quite deliberately from the beginning to use the vaccines as, if you like, a geopolitical instrument, is that the Chinese vaccines haven't proved to be as effective as some others. So the question of the ability of the vaccine makers to adapt vaccines to to the variants as they mutate is going to change the nature of what in some sense I think is a geopolitical competition around the vaccines and their use and the the attempt, obviously most systematically, I think, by China and Russia to use them for their broader political purposes. And that does touch on an, an older story. And this is a kind of real-time political experiment testing whether that story still holds, which is, you know, a view that certain kinds of political economy, certain kinds of regimes are better at adaptability than others. And over the last 12 to 15 months, and then the the vaccine phase of this, which after all was still only roughly since the announcement, the Pfizer announcement that shifted global stock markets in a day, we're in that phase of it. And that was what, November? Am I going to get this wrong? Yeah, November. November, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're nine months on from that. November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June, eight months on from that. So within that, phase that there's a sort of ubiquity to the vaccine story but in the background they're always sort of cheerleaders for western dynamic market oriented political economies who who feel that we i can say we here are better at the adaptability game than the other side and i don't think that's been tested yet and it's not at all clear to me also that it's true but it might be true i mean it might be true that this becomes a much more dynamic contest variant versus vaccine where adaptability is key rather than maybe productive capacity or speed or getting it out or even being able to offer it to 100 nations simultaneously is key we don't know but it's at least possible that that's part of where this is heading very good the second question are germany and its corporatist politics the perfect useful idiot for russia and particularly china so when i hear that question and i'm going to defer to helen in a second it depends a lot what we mean by corporate politics and also that phrase useful idiot that has so much going on in it. I'm not sure Germany, I think there are lots of things to be said about German corporatist politics. I find it hard to think that Germany and its politicians fit the category of a useful idiot, though. I mean, maybe I can come back to that. Helen, what's your take on that question? What does that question mean to you? I mean, it's very striking language and it poses a question very startling. On the other hand, I don't actually think that the the language of the useful idiot gets us very far in it, explaining what's going on with the relationship between German politics and German economic relations, which are primarily energy relations with Russia, and then the, in some ways, much deeper and complex German-Chinese economic relationship. What it is true to say is that if you look at the nature of the German-China commercial relationship and the importance of German car makers in that. There is some continuum between 
the structures of German domestic politics and the kind of corporate interests that have had influence and then the nature of that economic relationship between um, Germany and China and the importance to German politicians of the ability of German industrial firms, particularly the car makers, but not only to be able to sell in the very large Chinese market. I think that what we can see in German politics is the ways in which there has been a, you know, a long-standing determination now to separate out the question of the economic sphere and commercial relationships from the geopolitical question. So if you go back to Merkel's defence of long-standing defence now of Nord Stream 2, it's always been that it's a commercial question, it's an economic question, and that all the issues about Germany's own relations with Russia, the consequences of Nord Stream 2 for Ukraine, the absolute antagonism towards the two Nord Stream pipelines in Poland, that these all need to be dealt with separately and that they can't impinge on the basic, as she sees it, or not only in this case, German politicians, most German politicians see it as the need for Germany to import gas from natural gas from Russia in an efficient and secure, for their point of view, manner. So this idea that actually that you you don't make geopolitical trade-offs and you're not willing to say we're going to organise our economy in relation to strategic rivalry between either the United States and Russia or the United States and China runs quite deep in German politicians' mindset as well as having this sort of like long-standing corporate relationships, both, as I say, where energy is concerned in the Russia direction and in a much wider sense where China is concerned. So to me, what the the question raises, there's a kind of history to both those terms, useful idiot and corporatist. So useful, I think useful idiot, so it's always associated with Lenin. Mm. I think it's one of those phrases that when people look, they couldn't find him ever saying it, but somehow it attached to him. But the idea that Lenin said that you know, the West was full of these useful idiots, sort of naive and wishful social democrats who are kind of willing to go along with or tolerate forms of Marxist-Leninist propaganda, not realising just how soon it would overwhelm them. I don't think there's anything naive or wishful. I've never felt that German politics was naive or wishful. And that word corporatist, so it can mean for people the sense of corporate interests. And I certainly don't think Germany's big corporations are naive or wishful. But it also means, in the history of political thought anyway, the idea of a, a state, a polity, that is organised as a kind of body politic, corporatist, you know, its origin is the, the corporate version of politics where all the different parts are somehow integrated. It's quite functional. The idea of a functional politics where different groups, different interests are represented in a non-confrontational way in order to somehow manufacture a general set of interests. And German politics does have some of that to it. I mean, it was set up in that way, partly, and that part of its success has to do with that. And there is, therefore, within that, the possibility that it gets stuck in certain kinds of consensual mindsets that are harder to disrupt, that German politics might be harder to disrupt than more antagonistic, more confrontational, more deeply partisan politics. So German politics is still pretty partisan. And I think that's one of the questions we've talked about it before on this podcast where the German politics is shifting and that the forthcoming election is partly a test of that. I think when we've discussed it, Helen, you and I have both been struck by the extent to which it's quite hard to find strong dissent from the consensus on China within German politics. And yet 
one has to feel Germany is still a pretty robust democracy and and that's still to come. And the reason I struggle with the idea that this is a kind of useful idiocy, the, the implication being that in their self, I don't know, self-regard and sort of slight smugness, German politicians, the German political and economic class haven't noticed the extent to which they are sort of opening the door to a Chinese takeover of the West. I feel it's much more likely that German politics is cynical than that it's naive. Maybe not, but I, it feels to me anyway that there's unlikely to be much naivety about Chinese interests or indeed the ideology of the Chinese state, that this is quite calculating. The calculation may be wrong, but a politician or a business person who calculates wrong is not a useful idiot, I think. That's something different. It's a different category anyway. There's several different things going on here in terms of whether there's any significant potential for disruption around the China question in particular in in German politics. I think the answer is at the moment, not very much. On the one hand, you can look at the Greens and say that they have stood out a bit in their rhetoric. And if you listen to the, the Green candidate for Chancellor, she's quite keen on saying that Germany needs to put more importance on human rights in its relations with China and indeed for the EU to put more importance as a consequence on human rights in, in the relationship with China. And and it's become clear well beyond German politics that there is now some difficulty in ratifying the, the EU-China investment agreement. On the other hand, there's so much that has changed about the German-China economic relationship, not just over the last few decades, but over the last decade, particularly since Xi Jinping came to power and he pursued the the Belt and Road policy that Germany is effectively a de facto member of the Belt and Road, even though formally that it it isn't. It is at the hub of the train infrastructure that China is collaborating to construct through Eurasia. Germany's at the hub of the European part of that And that isn't going to change. I mean, these are sort of structural, if you like, economic structures that are being put in place and they're not going to be changed because some candidate for chancellor starts to say, well, maybe we should care a bit more about what's going on in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong. So I think that this is something that the infrastructure aspect of the German-China trade relationship is just too strong now, I think, to be at all easily disruptable. I think it's very hard to work out what's going on in terms of the thinking of the German politicians and perhaps Merkel in particular about the dangers around China and Russia and how much of this is perhaps just sort of more cynical hypocrisy and how much of it is naivety. I mean, if we take the Russia side of it, you can think of it as wishful in the sense that under Merkel's leadership, She's wanted Germany to be able to to make whatever economic commitments that it wants, not least in relation to its energy dependency upon Russia, and that not to have any impact on Germany's position in NATO or indeed on NATO's internal coherence and on the Atlantic relationship. It's as if to say she's always been insistent against Macron that NATO is utterly indispensable to Germany, but she doesn't want it to follow from that, that Germany needs to make any concessions on energy issues with Russia as a consequence of that, because as far as she's concerned, that that Germany doesn't have any alternative but to import large quantities of gas from 
Russia. Now, you could say that it's wishful because it's in the end naive to think that questions of military power and military security aren't extremely, perhaps even decisive in international politics and in relations between states and that the United States won't continue to provide security via NATO for Eastern Europe unless, from its point of view, there's more burden sharing. And you can understand then the Trump presidency and Trump's much greater pressure on Germany over a range of security issues, including energy dependency upon Russia than his predecessors. But on the other hand, you can turn around and say, well, actually, Merkel saw Trump out. There's now a president in the White House who has removed sanctions from Nord Stream 2, and that maybe that Germany doesn't actually have to make the trade-offs, and that actually it wasn't wishful to think that status quo from Germany's position could be continued. It was realistic because she came to the conclusion that when it really came to it, there wasn't anything that an American president could do about it. So I, I think trying to understand like how she thinks about these questions is really quite difficult. I think in relation to China, some of her rhetoric, some of the ways in which she talks about China, I think does come over as naive. She's very keen on talking about the partnership as well as systemic rivalry with China. And the overriding reason for the partnership side of it is climate. And I think where it can be naive is is not to understand that from Xi Jinping's point of view that climate isn't just an end in itself, that it is part of the way in which China is pursuing its geopolitical purposes in the world as it is. So China might have very strong reasons for pursuing carbon neutrality, but that doesn't mean that it won't do it in ways that are to China's benefit. So just hearing you say that, it makes me feel, it's fascinating what you say, it makes me feel there are two ways you might, one might be a useful idiot, thinking of the sort of Leninist analogy, one of which is you're a useful idiot because you don't recognise that they, the Leninists or whoever it is, they mean their ideology. They, you know, you think that the nastier bits, they don't mean it, it's just for show, but they do, they're Leninists. Mm -hmm. The other way it might be is the more old-fashioned sort of realist view. You don't realise that at the bottom of all this chat is real power relations, hard power relations. And you could be a, sort of a bit of an idiot in both ways. You know, it, it sounds to me it's it's possible, though it's unlikely that it's, it's the first, maybe, not around the Chinese Communist Party's Marxism-Leninism, because I don't think they do mean it, but around their nationalism and the nationalist rhetoric, they mean it, including the really hard edge bits. And it might be naive to think that you can have the more palatable bits and the really nasty bits will drop off. But if it's the second, then it is calculation. And like you, I think it's an open question who's calculated right and who's calculated wrong. Yeah. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And the next question stays with China, and it's this. Has China now replaced Russia in the great game? 
We're getting all of these nostalgic phrases, <laughs> useful idiot. The great game, that goes back. So the great game's meant to be Afghanistan, isn't it? It, it is, is it? yeah. Originally. It is. So if it's about Afghanistan, probably not, is the answer. <laughs> so the great game to me kind of brings to mind, I don't know, John Buchan and that kind of world. But I guess it's not exactly that question, is it? What do you think? I think the, the way the, the phrase was most commonly used was indeed in relation to Afghanistan and the place of Afghanistan in the in the conflicts between the, the British and the Russian empires, particularly from the middle part of the 19th century. And I think it was more often used on the British side of things than on the Russian side of things. I think that it's not easy to sit China into something where you replace Britain with America and then Russia with China in relation to Central Asia. It's not that there aren't geopolitical conflicts focused around the US and, and China in Central Asia, but I don't think there are the same dynamics that existed between the British and the Russian empires. I think if you look at it from the British end of it, though, that if you say, well, what was the ultimate fear that the British had of the Russians at that point? It was that the the Russians were going to end up with control or at least penetration of British rule in India and then spread into Persia. And there was an obsession, I think, about in British imperial policy going into the beginning of the, the 20th century was the Russia not getting a port on the Persian Gulf. And if you take that aspect of it, then I think you can say that there is a there is some parallel in the sense of China replacing Russia, because this issue of like what China's position in the Persian Gulf is is quite central. It is quite central to certainly to the geopolitics of energy in the 21st century that China went to you know considerable trouble to acquire the port of Ghadar and Pakistan down on just past the southern end of the Persian Gulf. And the rail politic of energy in the Persian Gulf at the moment is that the United States provides a naval presence for oil exports that are much more going to Asia and China and Japan than they are going to Europe and America. And I think that the fact that the Americans aren't very keen on the idea that China would end up with being the the dominant naval power in the Persian Gulf for energy reasons is part of the explanation of why we still see the American presence in the Middle East. I haven't got much to say on this, except because I don't know nearly as much as Helen about these questions. So I'm focusing on the words and the semantics. But so to me, the phrase, the great game, I mean, to play it, for it to be a game, both sides kind of have to be playing it, I think. I mean, I think that was part of the implication of the great game. It was a contest between two teams, each of whom were sort of, though there weren't many rules and there was quite a lot of scope for subterfuge, each of them was playing the same game. And I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I think it's possible one mistake that could be made by just replacing Russia with China is to assume that China's playing the same game, and it may well not be. Putin feels more like a game player than Xi Jinping, but again, I'm not sure he's playing the same game either because there's something so so radically in its way disruptive about his version of it, and also sometimes so incompetent. You know, if the Salisbury poisonings were part of the great game, God help us. But with China... My instinct feels it would be a mistake to frame this in the language of the great game. It's it's something else. I mean, this touches a bit on the last question, actually, about realpolitik and naivety and so on. Of course, there are going to be lots of questions in trying to contest different parts of the world, contest for influence, contest for power, but also for economic advantage. There is going to be a lot of 
subterfuge and trickery diplomats count, but presumably spies also count. I imagine there's a lot of spying going on in the world at the moment. And it, just because it's online doesn't mean it's not still recognizably espionage. And yet there must be a possibility that unlike 19th century imperial competition, if the West think that China's playing the game by the West's rules, that would be a mistake. I haven't got anything more to say to that, so just for the end of that one. <laughs> I feel like you'll have quite a lot to say about the next one. This feels like it's firmly in your wheelhouse. Sorry. <laughs> With oil prices climbing, will the politics of fracking re-emerge? And how will Democrats navigate this politically treacherous territory? That one, Helen, is in your wheelhouse. <laughs> and I don't know what my wheelhouse is, but it doesn't <laughs> seem to have that in it. Well, this is, again, one where I think this is already happening and it was happening from the beginning of um, Joe Biden's presidency because one of the first things that Biden did was to issue an executive order for a, a moratorium on the issue of permits for any more oil and gas drilling on federal land. And this so this went beyond fracking and, and shale to new permits for any form of oil and gas drilling, exploration drilling. And this was something that right from the start was weakly supported amongst many or at least enough Democrats in the Senate and in a number of Democratic states. It is extraordinarily unpopular. The clearest example of this is in um, in New Mexico, where the Democratic governor there, Michelle Lujan Grisham, basically attacked Biden in very strong terms because New Mexico is a is a state where much of the oil and gas that is presently produced is on federal land and it's not on private land. And a a significant part of the fiscal revenues for New Mexico come from the oil and gas industry. And at some point, I can't exactly remember when, in in the last few months, there was a vote in the Senate basically trying to preempt any additional ban on new fracking, on new shale, and quite a number of Democrats, including from New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Democratic senators joined the Republicans to form a a majority, which was basically a preemptive action against the Biden administration and against the Environmental Protection Agency from any such ban. So given the fact that the the Democratic majority in in the Senate is dependent on the vice president, this isn't an issue in which they've got much room for manoeuvre. And I I think that it will be something where there will be a lot of pushback in states that the Democrats need to hold on to going into the midterm elections. So I think that what we can see in the United States is, is that there is a really contested politics of energy, and it is really quite problematic for the Democrats, given the marginal control of the Senate. So I've definitely got nothing to say by way of an answer, but I have got a sort of extension of the question, or at least a bit of the question that you didn't touch on there, which is, to what extent do rising oil prices exacerbate this? And in in American politics, it's sort of notoriously been the case that the oil price, you you can track various things against the oil price over quite a long time frame and notice just how significant it sometimes is for electoral politics in the United States. Oil prices are rising at the moment, I just noticed it, as many people did last time I filled up my car. Does it charge this? Does it supercharge it? Higher oil prices always matter in most countries' politics, and they particularly matter in American politics. And as you kind of suggested, David, there is a there has been a sort of a history of presidential approval ratings and and oil prices moving basically in the in the same direction. 
The short term advantage of higher oil prices is that it makes it easier for the shale industry itself, which took terrible blows through the course of 2020 after the oil price collapse in March of last year. Now, I think it's the case that some of the, the shale industry, particularly in the, in the northern parts of the United States, probably isn't going to come back. But what has become the centre of it around Texas, the Permian Basin, is in a position to make a recovery. So we've seen this dynamic before. Once you get higher oil prices, you've also got a structural reason why they come back down again, because you make it easier for the shale producers, despite all the financial problems that they've had. And it's also in the interests of OPEC Plus, which is essentially, to the extent that it still exists, the oil cartel of OPEC Plus added Russia joining it since the autumn of 2016, is it's not in their interest for oil prices to rise too high either, including because higher oil prices benefit American shale producers. So they might well respond to rising oil prices by increasing production in order to bring them back down again. But if we look at the bigger picture in a sense of the medium term picture of what does it say that oil prices have risen as much as they have, despite the fact that there's been a only partial economic recovery from the pandemic, that suggests that the issue of oil prices, and I, I'm not going to straightforwardly say higher oil prices, because as I said, there's always a kind of structural reason that kind of pushes them back down again. But the issue of oil prices is absolutely not going away, despite the fact that we've got governments that are so committed to a green energy based recovery. Which leads us nicely, perhaps, into the next question. It does. In your latest episode, Helen mentioned London becoming the leader in green finance. Please could you elaborate what exactly green finance is and how the UK hopes to carve out and claim this space? <laughs> Still in that wheel, huh? <laughs> well, first of all, is that there were people in the in the city of London and indeed the British government that would like London to become the financial centre of green finance, but it isn't at the moment. I mean, it was one of the first places where they started to issue green bonds. But actually, there's a couple of other European countries, um, financial centres and the one in Zurich and in Amsterdam, that they're actually further along this road than London. I mean, I think that the aspiration behind it is to say that London is a you know, one of the two biggest financial centres in the, the world, that the British government was one of the first big countries, if not the first big country, relatively big country, I mean, by that, to move to a carbon neutrality target by 2050. It made that commitment. It was one of the last things that Theresa May's government did. And as part of that, Theresa May's government published a green finance strategy. And at the heart of it is the idea that both financial corporations governments and those actually in the green energy sector have got to get much better at driving capital, investment capital into green growth and also integrating assessment of risk in relation to the climate and environmental issues more generally into financial decision making. And given the fact that in London's case, there has been a, a hit to one aspect of its business model, so to speak, it's not true to say that the city has got a singular business model by the fact it's been government's not been able to negotiate an agreement with the with the European Union about equivalence for UK financial services, then this is an area in which the Johnson government is going to be very keen to push into say look London because of its general comparative advantages in, in finance, in its mind must be at the centre of green finance as it goes forward. 
do you think if you think about it as so there's green finance there's green innovation tech and other and then there's green industrial capacity i mean and these things are obviously related but they're also separate in some ways too you know you could build the wind farms you could invent more efficient wind farms you could finance the wind farms Ideally, I'm sure the Johnson government would like Britain to be a leader in all three, though it seems unlikely. That's quite ambitious. Do you think, in a way, there might be some willingness to accept that to lead in green finance would be sufficient? That is, that quite a lot of the innovation, never mind the industrial capacity, is going to have to happen somewhere else. I mean, the rhetoric is still, even if you think of just sort of the rhetoric of levelling up, which cuts across green politics, you know, the idea that there are parts of the UK, parts of England in particular, that could be kind of centres of industrial growth, but also of innovation, new kind of university hubs and tech hubs. The finance is still going to be the city of London. But if if there had to be a trade-off, do you think they'd take green finance as a sufficient for a win here to remain the centre of that? Uh, I think that the issue of green jobs is actually... Okay, that, so, yeah, that's a fourth category. Yeah, right. is actually at least as important to them as green finance. I'm not trying to minimise the green finance issue because it is important because if you're going to move into a world in which green energy issues are going to become ever more important and finance is part of that, I don't see any any evidence whatsoever that the Johnson government wants to downplay the City of London. It might not want to orientate its EU policy around what would probably be the majority preference in the in the city, but that's a separate question. I think the reason why green jobs is pretty central is, is because green jobs is seen as central to the levelling up strategy, particularly in relation to the, the North East. And that is as much as anything about the advantages in, in some ways. This isn't just a question actually of the North East, but of Scotland actually too. The east coast of the island of Britain has in relation to offshore wind. And there was one point where Boris Johnson said, I think it was the last Conservative Party conference speech, he said that he wanted to make Britain the, you know, the Saudi Arabia of wind. Regardless of how coherent that is, I think that is part of what's going on. I think the difficulty in this goes beyond Britain. You can see it in relation to Biden's green energy politics as well, is that it's very difficult in the short term to use this as an industrial strategy, even though there is clearly some aspiration, ambition, uh, I mean, more than strong ambition to do so in, in Biden's case, because at the moment, China is so dominant in the manufacturing component, the industrial manufacturing parts of green energy. I mean, the manufacture of solar panels being the most obvious example. So for the in the short term, nobody really knows how long that short term might be. The more that you do in this respect, the more that you strengthen China's capacity to export into the United States and into Europe. And it's notable that the two tariffs on particular sectors that Trump began the trade war with China over, one of them was refrigerators, but the other one was solar panels. The last question in the geopolitics chunk is this. I would like David and Helen to look into the potential Japanification of Western economies, High debt, poor demography, therefore low long-term growth rates. I see this rather than inflation as the bigger risk. Is it? Yes. <laughs> That's my answer. I've got more to say, but <laughs> is your answer yes? I'm not so sure. Um, first of all, I think this is a bit repetitive, but it, it, this is a really difficult question. Because if you look at like what happened in Japan's 
crisis when it began. It essentially experienced simultaneously a, a stock market bubble collapse and it experienced a property commercial real estate market collapse began in the very end of 1989 and into 1990. And then what you see is basically a whole series of policy responses to it that had to become more radical, particularly in relation to monetary policy as time went on. And you ended up with the Japanese government having a, a very high debt ratio in relation to GDP. And the question is said, then, you see fairly stagnant growth through these periods at a time in which Japan was moving to have demographics of one of the oldest societies, essentially, in the world. I think the difficulties in making the comparison are that what happened in Japan happened over a long, fairly long, protracted period of time. Although that there was a stock market crash and a property bubble collapse, it, after the immediate crisis, it was more sort of like non-linear I think perhaps would be the way to describe it and through all that time though Japan was still a country an economy that was more likely than not to have a, a trade surplus so if we try and make some comparisons like with like Britain and the United States then I think that that becomes quite difficult to make because these are countries that for the last few decades have actually had substantial trade deficits quite a lot of the time, though in the United States case, less so since shale oil came about. So I don't think that the macroeconomic story is quite comparable. It might be more comparable in relation to some continental European countries, including Germany, where there were stronger parallels between the German, if you like, macro political economy and the Japanese. But again, you don't really see that what happened in Germany over the last decade looks particularly like what's happened in Japan, not least because their attitude towards state debt is radically different. And I think the other thing I would say, and this goes back to what I was talking before about in relation to oil prices, is is that you know quite a lot or quite a number of the difficulties that the American economy and European economies have had since the middle of the 2000s, I think, can be understood in relation to the particular problems that the dysfunctionality in oil markets have caused their economies. And Japan's part of that too, but that story isn't part of the origins of the Japanese crisis back in the 1990s. So I think that this is a case where you can see some, if you like, superficial comparisons. And it's been quite easy to say that Japan looks like an earlier case of what um, Lawrence Sumner has called secular stagnation. But if you don't think that secular stagnation is quite explained in the way in which the people who use that phrase want to use it, then I think the comparison becomes more difficult. So let me qualify my original yes. So the question was asking, is this a greater risk than inflation? We'll see about inflation. But framing the question in terms of demography, I was I was actually not thinking so much of the United States as thinking of continental Europe. I mean, that the idea that the, the Japanese, not model, but the Japanese example may have wider implications and ramifications. I think particularly when you think about demography, ageing societies, the possibility of, relatively speaking, low long-term growth rates. It's a real risk. That said, I think there are worse fates than Japanification. I mean, I think there are worse places to be than Japan. There, are worse, there have been worse places, many worse places to be than Japan over the past three, four decades since the bubble burst. And it is interesting to think about what Japanification has come to mean, because after all, in the before the bubble burst, 
in the late 80s, there was a feeling that the world was about to be Japanified because Japan was the coming superpower. And Japanese companies were taking over in the United States, among other places. There was all of that sort of paranoid stuff that there is, has some comparison, but not much to how people sometimes think about China now, that Japan was coming. Japan was coming to eat America's lunch. And then there was also that sense of Japanification. I often think about this because it's in this sort of neglected part of Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, where he says what the end of history is going to look like is Japan or the European Union. Those are his two models of the end of history. And he's writing in 1992. So he's writing after the Japanese bubble burst, but before Japan got stuck in its secular stagnation or whatever it was. But the implication, weirdly, actually, to go back to an earlier question, was this was a sort of corporatist model, that the end of history, the triumph of liberal democracy was an increasing tendency towards this kind of bland politics of functional interests and sort of rotation maybe of people in power, but it didn't mean much. And Fukuyama says it's sort of like the politics of the tea ceremony. It's quite elegant and there's a certain amount of elegant movement, but actually it's quite placid underneath. Not true. <laughs> so the world hasn't been Japanified in that way any more than the European Union turned out to be that kind of institution. The European Union doesn't look much like a tea ceremony anymore if it ever did. And so Japanification has come to mean this other thing, this maybe that kind of politics, and also, for all the reasons Helen said, that kind of economy getting stuck and unable to shake itself out of the, the trap that it had fallen into. And if you get away from the specific comparisons just to a general theme, if the possibility that's being countenanced here is rather than, say, the risks of Inflation and some of the kind of tumult, political tumult that comes with that, you know, that fear of a return to the 1970s, say, this is more like a future of Japan in the 2000s or 2010s, which is a sort of stuck in a rut politics or political economy with a certain amount of rotation at the top, but real frustration in getting to grips with the underlying trends at work. If that's what Japanification has come to mean, I think it's a real risk, having said which, you know, there are many worse things than that. There are many worse things than getting stuck in a rut, unless while you're in the rut, the world comes to an end, which is always a possibility. But if that's what Japanification means in this question, maybe it doesn't in those very broad terms. And maybe the United States will, will buck that. The United States is still a pretty dynamic place. But I think it is a real risk. Yeah, I think that there's several interesting things here. The first of them is that one of the things that's really striking about what happened to Japan as these economic problems set in was really how little political instability that came out of it. It didn't lead to the kind of developments that we now think of, if you like, as sort of democratic political disruption of the kind that we saw in any number of European countries and in the United States after the, the 2008 crash. And I think what's so interesting about it is what, you know, what I talked about, it leads to a certain amount of sort of rotation at the top. But what's so, to me, striking about Japanese politics is it's still so much about the politics of corruption. You know, it's, it's scandal. It's, it's scandal politics rather than being a manifestation of some kind of structural crack in the system. And that's also a possible future for us, too. I mean, one of the features of politics when it gets stuck is rotation happens through scandal rather than through substantive change. And, and Japan does seem like a kind of exemplar of that. Just want to throw that in. Yeah, I think the other thing you might say, though, is like that Japan is obviously, more than any other country, or any other relatively large country, had a China shock 
I mean, you know, he'd had a China shot going back to, you know, like 1971, really, when, or 1972, when essentially Nixon and you know, Kissinger ripped up the entire post-war order in East Asia in which Japan had orientated itself around in order to establish relations again with China. But that China, the present tense China shot, whenever we want to say that it began from, let's say, from 2001 when China entered the World Trade Organization, hasn't manifested itself in Japanese politics in really in quite the same way that it has, say, in American politics in different ways. There isn't an equivalent of Trump, though I think you can argue that certain aspects of Japan's politics has had to deal with particularly the questions about Japan's historical relationship with China. I think, though, that if we go turn to the question about inflation and whether there's something that has set Japan apart by having this period that can be conceived as deflationary and now we might expect there to be some future shocks coming, political shocks coming to European democracies and North American fear a rise in inflation. If there's going to be a rise in inflation, I think it's most likely to come actually out of the uh, from energy, and then that is going to affect Japan as it is much as it's going to affect any other, any European or North American country. So it's quite possible that economic conditions, if that is the direction of travel, which to energy-driven inflation, that Japan isn't going to look so different in economic terms as what's going on elsewhere. Now, that doesn't mean that the political consequences in Japan won't still be relatively singular in comparison, but I think that the inflation story, if it's coming, will be common. Can I just ask, do you think it's coming? Uh, Paul Krugman doesn't, but then he never does. I mean, I was reading him this morning. He doesn't think it's coming. I mean, coming. there's no doubt that there's already more inflation in the American economy than there was before we entered into the pandemic. I think that trying to work out like what the inflationary potential or not of a, what could be a rapid recovery from the pandemic is is quite difficult. And I think the arguments can be made in, in both directions. I mean, I'm of the view that in the medium term, that energy will be a, a source of inflation in the ways in which it was in the, in the 1970s. That was the first of three episodes that we're going to be putting out answering questions. Next week, we're going to get to UK politics, questions about the future of the union. And we've also got some questions coming up too about what Helen and I really care about. We'll also be telling you soon about our plans for the summer and all the exciting stuff we've got coming up in the autumn. So do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Helen. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have much to say on some of these questions. <laughs> Especially the geopolitics. I think in the future we should have buzzers, like if someone says something really... (laughs) Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 